This is MC Fireside Chats, a weekly show devoted to the outdoor hospitality industry, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. You'll hear from special guests that focus on topics to help your business succeed, all backed by Modern Campground, the most innovative news source in the industry. everybody to another episode of mc fireside chats my name is brian Searle with insider perks here as always sometimes maybe hopefully she'll be here the whole time my co-host kara sismadia from the canadian camping and rv council super excited to have her input as always valuable addition to the show and then we're here for our glamping episode uh regularly scheduled happens once a month here so we've got some of our recurring guests back welcome back irene i had a communication issue with irene she didn't think she was available to be invited to the show every week and so we just kept thinking she didn't like us but the truth was, she <laughs> did, and she thought we didn't like her enough. So we're glad to have Irene back as a recurring guest. We've got Zach here from Clockwork. We've got Connor from the Association. We are missing David Smith today. He's traveling, so hopefully he'll be back with us next month. So guys, uh, before we get started, I want to thank our, I always forget to do this, our sponsor for this episode, which is Horizon Outdoor Hospitality. I have a graphic somewhere for them that I'll pull up here. Horizon outdoor hospitality, campground management, RV park management. Uh, just really great group of people to work with. Scott Poos is the CEO. He's a regular recurring guest in week one. But if you guys are looking for anything like that, consulting, management, things like that, then Horizon is one of the better players in the game. Along with other people, but Horizon's a good one. So we're happy and grateful that they're a sponsor of the show and give them a call if you think they might be able to help you. So what's up? what's on our agenda here? We've got John and Tamika. So I feel like maybe we should have John and Tamika, our non-regular guests, introduce themselves first. Tell us a little bit about themselves and we can take it from there. Yeah, sure. I'm John and Tamika Romes. We're both from Evolution Glamping. We're based out of Alexandria, Virginia. That's right outside of DC for those people who don't know. <laughs> so we service the DMV area, DC, Maryland, Virginia, up to about two hours out from Alexandria. We're a pop-up or mobile glamping company. So we'll pop set up for, for weddings or any kind of events like that. And then we are also getting into some permanent sites. We have some permanent sites on other people's lands, one in well, Damascus, yeah. Maryland, and another one coming soon, also in Maryland, and then hopes to get some in Virginia. So how did you guys just briefly tell us, and we'll talk about this as we go throughout the show, right? But how did you guys get into this lamping industry? How did you start? We actually, I'm retired in the army and Tamika is also, she's reserved. And we had this thing called forced camping for our entire careers where we had to go sleep on the grounds outside and we liked the outside, but we realized that sleeping on the ground is overrated. <laughs> so we decided to help people get outside and we wanted to do that. And we were like, how do we get people, more people outside? We found glamping and it really just started merging together. So that was a perfect fit for us. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm going to anyway. What is the difference maker, right? Why are you guys different than some of the other glamping options that you've seen or why? And I guess the two part, right? Or why did you head in the direction that you currently did with Evolution Glam? I think for us, what makes us different is that we really do focus on getting people outside in a easy and comfortable way. We set up everything for them, beds, where they need it. If it's in their backyard, we bring out everything and set it up. All they have to do is enjoy. And that's our primary focus is just like getting outside and reconnecting with nature and each other. 
Good answer. All right. That could be like a whole new category of glamping too, is just forced glamping. Like people, yeah. it's a whole experiential based thing. People who have a hard time leaving the office, they have to ah. glamp. So I like it's that. Actually, it's yeah. really not a bad idea. And to be clear, like we don't want to force anybody to do anything, but there's, but when you talk about Americans and their unused vacation hours that go to waste mm -hmm. every year, there actually was a, a there's a policy. I'm going to try to start at our company when we get the right benefit that's on the list, but I've read other companies who have created like this, you have X amount of vacation time, but then in addition is a separate benefit. You have a pool of money that you can use toward vacation every year, but the only thing you can use it toward is vacation during your vacation weeks. And so it gives that extra incentive for people to actually use their vacation time. So it's not, it's an like interesting it. thing, right? So, so they need gently nudged, not forced. But sometimes you deserve a vacation. You should just take it. And glamping is obviously one of the best ways to do that. So. It is hilarious. We have to incentivize people to take vacation. I know. I know. To me, to be fair, like some of us, like I'm insane. I like work. And so I do love vacation and getting outside and hiking and all that kind of stuff. But I also love work. So I feel like I'm on vacation when I'm working. It's very, I don't know. I'm weird. But. Yeah. Yeah, you're weird. I'm curious to know from John and Tika about the decision to do the kind of focus on the model that you're using where you're mobile and able to set up as opposed to, I know you mentioned you have some static properties now, but how or why you decided to start that way? We decided, we realized that there's a lot of people who have land in Virginia that's just being unused. Either it's just sitting there for families or, and they have it, but they don't know what to do with it. And so why not be able to just bring it to their yard and just set it up for them and then take it away where they don't have to worry about it. That's really where it came from. We've been able to do anything from one tent in someone's backyard here in, in the suburbs, or you're able to go out to a vineyard, a winery vineyard and set up 12 tents and have a huge wedding and be able to break it down too without even worrying. So that's really what got us into it was just the realizing how much unused land there is and what people can do with it. So what does the setup and breakdown look like? Like for how, is it actually, I'm sure it must be because you're running a business, but how does that work from a cost-effective manpower if it's just one tent in somebody's backyard? Is there a high margin on that or? There isn't a high margin on the one tent. We realized that the one tent is actually where we lose the most, <laughs> to be honest, but it's, it's really more at that point of just making an experience for somebody. And we're, We've talked through it a couple of times about getting rid of it and we don't want to do it specifically because we want people to be able to have that experience. We'd rather break even and someone have that experience than not and take it away. When you were looking, uh, go ahead. No, you go. <laughs> I'm, I probably have a terrible question. You probably have a good question. <laughs> well, I feel like we're probably thinking along the same lines here. You will. All right. So my question is when you were deciding what type of glamping tent or accommodation to yep. offer. Did we choose one based on how quickly it could be broken down, set up, or what was the factors that went into that? Definitely. So we, we looked at into it, into a bunch of different ones. Bell tents, by far the easiest to break down a setup, and definitely a five meter versus a six meter, just for the weight of it there to come in and out. I, after a few times of getting used to it, you can carry a bell tent, no problem, throw it down, set it up in about 15 minutes, and then have the whole thing set up in about 45. So I'd, once you get get good at it, you can do it pretty fast. And we tried other things, but I don't, I think we're going to stay away from anything larger than a six meter. Connor, can you set up a bell tent in 45 minutes? 
No, the <laughs> couple times that I've done it, I think it took me like oh, like hour and a half. I an think would, Ruben, I think this would be a good team building activity at the conference. Yeah. A relay race in Norway where they have the wife carrying thing or whatever. No. Like we could have bell tent carrying and then how fast can you set it up wins a prize. I actually like that. You have to go and then drink a beer and then set up a tent and then <laughs> yes. disassemble and yeah. 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 Put it around a baseball bat. Suggest a lot of stretching first. <laughs> yeah. That would be a hard one to explain away. How'd you hurt yourself? I entered a bell tent setting up contest and yeah, you don't want to, you don't want that to happen. I'm waiting for the air mattress without you going to blow it up for your team. That'll yeah, work. That's a good idea. Yeah, we can make it more challenging. We can have round one and then round two, you have to put the stuff inside the tent. Somebody's going to pass out. <laughs> it would be entertaining to watch. That's all I'm saying. I was going to say, Irene, you just started the season, right? So how's, how did, how did the season start out? It's so interesting. I was just, sorry, my phone overheated. That's. But we have sunshine for the first time in probably 200 days. But I would tell you, it's been going really well. You're fine. You have it figured out. So we are, you know, first weekend, last weekend, it was great. We have a whole group coming into Detroit today with all their fancy cars. That's going to be super fun. So feels, I feel like an old cat now. I just feel like I, I don't have some of those crazy learning curves that I did in here regularly one two three and four so like so an the old opening dog. day kind of opening day feel the opening week two weeks has felt good it hasn't felt it like did. it did i didn't have that down. the anxiety with my feeling like my my pulse was coming out of my throat or oh my god how are we going to do the team is seasoned they've done it before the guest has been seasoned they've been they know what to expect you train your guests for what to expect of you so they know what to expect of us and actually it was awesome it was I felt, oh yeah, this is, this is exactly why we do what we do. This feels so good. And this is what it feels like to finally have figured out what to do. I'm curious to know, Irene, how much, how many of your guests are repeat? It's interesting this past weekend, zero. But I would tell you, and then the guests, the whole group that's coming in today, zero. But when I look at some of the reservations for the weekend, maybe 25%. Cool. Yeah. So a little bit of everything, which is nice because it keeps things fresh. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great. So what else is on our minds in the glamping industry here, guys? I've got a question for John and Tamika. And again, I think it's just our perspective. So much of what we do working with startups and with glamping owners is related to permitting and planning and zoning. Is there any sort of permit that's required for kind of a temporary setup is it a, an event permit or it, as long as it is just a couple of days temporary there's really no regulation or what have you guys run into on the permitting approval side that's yes, why they put it up fast man they just run it and run out in like 45 minutes, minutes right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's about right no so <laughs> so we actually if it's one tent in a backyard you hardly ever get uh, someone complaining unless it's an HOA, right? But, and then, but if you're doing 12, that's where the trouble comes in. We've done a lot on farms and farms are zoned, usually non-residential, they're agricultural. So they're able to get around a lot of those rules as well. But as long as it's for a private event and it, in most counties, it is not a problem. What are you guys doing for bathroom solutions? And are you seeing a big demand for that? Are people paying 
premium for that? How's that part go? So we, most of them, because they're on somebody's residence or a farm or something like that, there's a bathroom there on site, but we've read it. We've included into our price also, if needed bathrooms, so we can do the trailer drop-off bathrooms and then I just pick them up a couple of days. It's not bad when it's two or three days when it comes to more than that's when it gets ridiculous. Yeah. I think those type of add-on is kind of like the next frontier, right? 10 years ago, it was all about just the tent and the land. And then as of five years ago, it was more of really the amenities around it and the different add-ons that you can have within the experience. And now as people are starting to, everybody from pop-ups, so larger scale, one unit to a hundred units, just a more turnkey, comprehensive bathroom, water, sink, shower solution that will actually be universal. There's some that are out there that are okay, but they're really expensive. And I think that's going to be an interesting, who would have thought? I know it's not the most sexy item of all glamping, but it's something that hits everybody, right? Because everybody can be in remote locations and it's not easy to, or cheap for certain tie-ins for utilities and, and to have a little bit more of a drag and drop solution. Maybe there's quite a few, I haven't seen them that are check all the boxes, but that's something I think is the next frontier. Who would have thought, right? The biggest ask for us besides restrooms is here, heating and cooling. Yeah. And so that's, that's add on that we have is to get an air conditioner, a portable air conditioner or a heater added. And then the other one is power. And we have those rechargeable, solar rechargeable mm -hmm. battery, battery packs that can go out, which are great for a couple of days. I wouldn't want to live off of them for on a permanent site, but they're perfect for the multiple site. Well, kind of, that was my other question is what do you guys encounter? What's your biggest challenge to, to try to address in your business right now? Really hard ground. No, I'm just kidding. It's, a, it's, a, it's just getting the word out to people of what mobile glamping or pop-up glamping really is. It's unheard of. And people just go to a venue, they'll go to a winery or they'll go to a wedding venue and they'll say, we want to do glamping. Do you know anybody? And unless we are connected with that venue, they have no idea that it's even a thing. So we're trying to just trying to educate event planners and venues on the ability to get this. I just want to interject. Do you mind if I interject really quick? I was just listening to you. And one of the things that I know just in our area, there's a lot of these visitors bureau or business centers that have ABOs, like after business hours where you could pop one up and put an experience in. Cost you nothing. It's a little bit of free marketing, but what it does is it exposes you to other businesses in the area, whether it's restaurants, hotels, event venues. I just did one like two weeks ago in our town, and whoever is trying to feature a business, they always have that there. That's a really nice way of you getting in front of. Also, just showing them what revenue can look like. It's really hard. I know as a business person, when somebody's always trying to pitch you an idea, hey, listen, let's give you a. Right now, it's really obviously everybody knows this, like the cold plunging or the saunas. And so we'll have somebody who has a mobile sauna or a mobile cold plunge and they'll come over and they're like, hey, listen, do you have five minutes? I want to just show you this. The reality is everybody's just time crunched and there's a pull in every direction from everybody that wants either a piece of your business or to see your business, like to say, hey, listen, can I sell you coffee? Can I sell you mattress? You definitely need me for your whatever it is. I just think that just presenting them with an rep, this is how this enhances your business. It'll cost you nothing. We'll set this up. We'll do a revenue split of 50-50 and we'll try it for three weeks. If it works great, we can add more. If it doesn't, I'll pull it. No harm, no foul. 
because I think that it's hard. And as you guys know, you're starting a business too. You have to make a lot of decisions pretty quickly. And sometimes something feels like a heavy lift or it feels like it's overwhelming because it's not your core business. But by you saying, no, this is my core business. I can help you increase revenue. I'm happy to do a revenue split with you, or I can show you how this could be really effective. Here's three ways we could style it. I need two minutes of your time. Let's just try it for three weeks, two weeks, one night. And if you hate it, I'll take it out. We'll have a conversation again. That's a really effective way. I think for, particularly for something that is non-permanent, right? You're taking the lead showing dollar because everybody is dollars and cents. Yeah, that rep share model has really worked for our, that's exactly what we're doing for our permanent sites on someone else's land is that rep share and it's been extremely great. Yeah. And then we're, we're preferred vendors now in a couple of venues that's, that's really pushed us elevators quick, pretty quickly because they, you know, they want to push us and use us every single time. Yeah. I appreciate that. What's the scalability of this? Let's say 50 venues want to have you wedding venues. What's your, what's the ability to be able to scale? So right now we have, we have 12 tents. We're going up to 20 by the end of the year. We don't know if we want to go any higher than that. We've talked about possibly franchising, but it just gets to the point of either we'd have to expand our business and start hiring other people to go other places and be located so we can quickly disperse them as needed, or we'd have to franchise it out in another way. So really that's where we're stuck as the, one of those two options. So I was probably have some under. I was just going to say, you probably have some underutilized assets when you're not deploying them. Have you thought about partnering up with a rental company to say, hey, listen, Mitzvik, if you need some interior rentals for, and I'll just think of styled shoots, I'm trying to think of some other things like corporate events, because it's in summary, it's like a rental company with the exception of the permanent ones that you guys have on the farm. So anything that's underutilized, have you looked to explore other ways to deploy the asset? No, that's really smart. We can look at, definitely look at towards partnering with the rental company because there's always someone that looks, we actually rent out just a tent or just some things as well. So good at partnering with the rental company and say, Hey, if you need, you know, this, that, or the other kind of give them an inventory sheet of what we have. Yeah. It's a lot. And I think that's like the secret there too, because that's for permanent or temporary or pop-up is that everybody has the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday that everybody's battling. And some people have figured out how to plug in and utilize those days or those assets. And some it's possible to do really well and some haven't. But I feel like that is definitely a, just a, like a cheat code, right? Something that when people could actually figure that out, it goes such a long way because no matter what, unless you're in very limited markets, you're, there's a level of seasonality, no matter what. And so if you're already, you're already swimming up against the current, no matter what, because of seasonality. So then on top of that, if you can't rent seven days out of the week, you're just losing that income. And I think permanent sites, large, medium, and small temporary, I think that's a good point that everybody has to run up against And some, there's an easy answer and some not, but those that figure it out. Yeah, man, that, that makes a huge difference. And what well, I was going to suggest is, is actually the opposite. I would tell you to look into concerts uh, or live music type events and functions. Again, you may only book four or five a year, six a year, but when you do those, you may deploy 50 tents for a two day, three day weekend. And you're, you're going to make a much bigger cash grab. Also, I'd, 
that's a trend that we're seeing right now with all these live music events. And they've figured out that they can make more money if they can sell an experience and not just a concert ticket. And so now you're starting to see these package deals where it's a VIP ticket, it's prefer preferential staging areas, getting those people that are willing to pay for it closer to a stage, giving them access to an open bar for the duration of a show, and then giving them a place to crash when everything is done and over with. And again, it's going to be a lot of work in a short period of time, but rather than trying to, to nibble at getting one or two rentals on your off days, you can focus on some of those bigger draw, bigger event functions where you might make in one or two days what you made all month, the prior month. That, that would be one of my suggestions is, and I don't know if there's an amphitheater or, or a live music venue or outdoor concert venue that's near where you guys or if any of the, uh, the venues the that you're working with offer that, but that would be another suggestion. And then I would just add another thing to do is there's a lot of, but the cross, you bell tents now on Walmart's website, cross coders showing up. What are the ways to capture some of the revenue could be for your social media following or creating online just to get passive drop through revenue from creating it, showing how to buy it? Because ultimately people will pay for it once, but would they pay for it a multitude of times? Because in the multitude of times, they likely could just buy it and keep it in their garage. So that's another option, too, is for you to put together like an online Amazon store that says, hey, listen, you guys want to do this. This is what it looks like. You didn't set it up, but you got the click through and the cash from somebody purchasing it through your Amazon storefront. I know people that are making a ton of money doing that right now. It's crazy. See, so this is why we, this is why I love the show, just to be clear, because everybody here gives great advice and that balances what I'm about to say. So I feel like if you're in Alexandria and none of these solutions work for you, right? Just in the middle of the night, go set up one in the back of a senator's yard and the media coverage you get from that will surely get you business. We, we thought about setting them up and then having people pay us to take them down. I like, pretty specific. I can be like, hey, you want it down? We got, well, you got to charge us. Let's go fundraisers. It's actually interesting. I posted something about that on LinkedIn the other day. I found this great meme of this guy who was running, he built a zoo or something. I can't remember the exact post now, but he built a zoo and he charged like, I don't know, X number of dollars to come in and nobody was coming in. So he lowered the price again and nobody was still coming in. So finally he lowered it again and nobody still. And so then he made it free and a bunch of people came. And then when they all came in the zoo, he locked the gates and let the lions out and charged them $500 to leave. That's one way of doing it. I think the moral of the story was basically like, be careful what you get for your business that's cheap because it's not always, doesn't always work out that way in the long run, but it's interesting. Quick, because I think Irene, you had hit on this earlier, but this is a question for the group too, just out of curiosity and for the operators, but then also for everybody else, because I think now as we talk about the saunas and the hot tubs and all these add-on amenities, what has everybody seen that people are asking for or wishing that they had or add-ons that are working? Because to your point, there, there's some of these that just take the sauna, for example, is a good, a good example. At the end of the day, in some places they may work, some places not. Is it worth the expense and whatnot? But just curious what people are seeing that people as guests are asking for, but then also feels relevant or working at other 
as at other properties. Just because it's there doesn't mean it's actually working or driving revenue. And it feels like this type of category, there's always something a little unique and a little different that people can grab extra revenue from. There's a from investment. So just curious if anybody's seen anything out there in that regard. Yeah, we've we've actually tracked the data on that for saunas and hot tubs, and it's pretty remarkable. Like one of the biggest boosts make to your ADR aside from bathroom and food and bed is a sauna or a hot tub. I would probably venture to say maybe a 10 to 25% rate increase for having those amenities as a private or a shared amenity, depending on your setup, obviously on the higher end, if it's private. Uh, and then if you're thinking, okay, maybe I can make 20% more per booking, adding a sauna, private sauna to this glamping unit. And then you look at the cost of the sauna, maybe it's five grand or eight grand. And then you basically just work backwards and say, okay, how long, how many years will it take me to pay this off? Is it going to be two years, three years? And then on top of that, it's, and then it will last for 10. How much extra cash can I make with that investment? And yeah, so those are, those in particular are two of the biggest amenities that, that we're seeing besides private bathroom and food and bed. Yeah. I think on our, the feedback that we get often from clients and from operators is that Everybody says they want a sauna and as Connor said, they're willing to pay more for it, but a lot of times they go unused on a property. If you made the investment, you had it. Some people may say, I'm, I don't care. We're only going to be there 24 hours or 48 hours. And I don't value that enough. I'm not going to use it. It can also be a real headache. I had one operator that, that told me this whole horror story where they had brought in a couple of saunas. And within a couple of months, they ended up getting just absolutely flamed online and it ended up resulting in a lawsuit that they had a guest that had stayed with them, had used their sauna and had developed some type of a, a rash, a skin reaction after doing so. And there was like a perfect line on their chest, like right where the water level was. And they had alleged that they'd been exposed to some type of bacteria in the sauna and were pursuing damages against the owners. I think Connor brings up some good points on the revenue side and the cash flow side, but I think for a lot of our clients, when we breach that subject, is this something you want? Is this something you want to consider? There's some operational questions with it. I almost think Brian, we could do like a, a dedicated episode, call it the pool sauna grunge match, where we bring in like several of these different vendors. Cause I think there are options that I think most everybody's probably seen the cedar-sided hot tubs or a smaller hot tub. I actually got connected with a new company that's launching right now that's doing precast concrete outdoor tubs that are wood-fired outdoor tubs. It looks like a really cool product. He messaged uh, me on LinkedIn too. Is it the one from Europe? I don't know where it's from. I think the name is like single. They look like bathtubs almost. Not hot yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you, yeah. they're comfortable for two people to sit in. Yeah. Um, yeah, they look really cool. But those things, those are all meant to basically be filled and completely drained between each guest. So I think there's less of an issue of some of the liability concerns, but now it becomes a maintenance operations piece, right? This has to be done every time you turn the unit. So I've been curious to hear Zach, do you, and maybe you can't speak to this, but do you know if there's any kind of insurance issues or things arising from this when operators do choose to put these amenities in? I'm not sure on the spas. I imagine that it is probably something you want to notify your insurance carrier that, hey, we're adding this as an amenity to make sure you're covered. 
There may be an additional writer or something that we need to add to that. We've actually been going through this on a, a project right now that has a very large pool and lazy river. And there was a question of, are we going to re be required to have lifeguards? Mm -hmm. You know, the clients have, we own several other properties with swimming pools that we don't have a lifeguard anywhere. It's just people swim at your own risk. And this property is a little bit different and we're bringing a little bit more to the design of the table on this one. And so we're actually going back and looking at, is there a state law or state requirement that it would necessitate lifeguards on duty for that? I yeah. think John and Tamika have the answer here. It's inflatable hot tubs where you don't even have just blow them up. And then when they sue you, what hot tub? It's what are you talking about? There's no hot tub there. Genius. Yeah. Um, kitty, kitty pool. Was that what it's? Oh, one thing I, I think I might add interesting. is from a, from an operational and maintenance perspective is that Zach, I believe you're probably talking about the hot tub, right? With water saunas, which have come with quite a high maintenance of balancing the pH and the chlorine and the filters and the changing out the water and things like that. A much simpler and low maintenance amenity is a sauna, which has no real water. You're, you basically either just have wood fired or electricity. There might be some sort of liability that still comes along with that in terms of maybe someone could accidentally burn themselves on the hot stove, which Wall is a risk. Inside. Yeah. Um, everything but it is operational. Go ahead. It now. is much simpler to maintain. Low. You know, Everything has its operational challenges, right? To be sure. It's just whether you feel comfortable overcoming those or that increase in price or whatever it is to achieve the experience you want to deliver to your guests. I was just going to say that I was, Zach, I was listening to your description on the hot tub and risk and liability. In five years, we have engineered or re-engineered camp, gosh, a dozen times to engineer out risk, whether it was the initial construction of the tents or it was a position or I can't the amount of things that from an operational standpoint that had to be adjusted to manage risk is pretty significant just for anybody that really is thinking about operational insurance I think the reality is just to be very candid with whoever is putting together your insurance and then you have it where you're talking with an attorney and you're saying hey listen I want to I, I want to manage risk and I want to protect my investment. What is the waiver that needs to be signed? How are we ensuring if something does happen? All of those things that just come with it. Think about thunderstorms and lightning strikes and being bit by something that could cause it or being burned by a campfire. All of the things I tease everybody. It is one of the hardest things I've ever had to run. There's We lost you a little bit at the end. Oh, you yeah, did. I think I, we, yeah. Now you're back. So you just, if you want to repeat Fuck. your last two sentences, that's yeah, I just was going to say that just make, making sure you have really good insurance and a very good attorney and a good waiver. And then just train, train, train your team and you're constantly evaluating your risk and saying, oh boy, we got lucky there. Let's re engineer that part. Oh, we got lucky here. Let's re engineer this part. Just being very, I would say if I wouldn't put my mom in it, if I wouldn't put my dad in it or a kid in it, obviously we'd be here in it. That's just the reality of the outdoor business. Yeah, this so is I'm one. curious. Own a marketing agency. I'm too scared to own a clamping or kid there. I'm too weak. I'm curious, John and Tamika, and I don't know how long you've been in business, but it seems like this is not a, exactly a new venture for you. What are some of the things that 
the adjustments that you've made, things that you've tried that didn't work or things that you learned and now you do differently? So we've only actually been in business a year. We're pretty new. We jumped in the deep end and took up. So I did corporate for a couple of years after in between military and this, and I realized that I absolutely hated it. So we were like, let's go head first in the, in the clamp. And so we, but a couple of things that we've, we've done that have really enhanced our business was we started doing inflatable, you were talking about inflatables, it actually made triggered by <laughs> inflatable theater. So the, I don't know if you've seen it, but the movie screen that's inflatable. Screens. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Those are big. People love them for their backyards or parties or whatever they're doing. And then inflatable. And what was the other one we did? Oh, the silent disco headphones. Yep. So watching the movie, but not having to deal with audio problems of there's a plane overhead. There's people, the neighbors are complaining, blah, blah, blah. So the silent disco headphones on top of that are perfect for that solution. And then some of the things that we really haven't uh, had people, had people get that we thought they would is the solo stove. We got a couple solo stoves and nobody's running them out. People are just happy to just create a fire in the ground and not care about the environment. All right. Well, if everybody's going to be quiet, what else is going on? There's got to be something you guys have come across in architecture or consulting or reporting or data analytics. The season's starting. What are you hearing, Ruben, from everybody who's starting their season here? How's it going? What's the mood? Yeah, like? I think it's okay. interesting. This year's an interesting dynamic because you had you take the last few years in, in chunks. The last two years had a very interesting, very specific vibe. Two years before that, for sure, then five years before that. So I think now there's a sense of wait and see in a way where there's just different market forces all the way around from those who are still building to those that have just closed on their property to those that are in year three. There's just unique external market forces from the consumer all the way to hiring and keeping your general manager and other people on staff. So I think it curious to hear what you guys think, but I think this year's it has a very interesting, we're going to see how everything shakes out. It's not bad. Nothing is negative about it, but it's the beginning of, I think the next cycle. You, you feel like it's impacting manufacturers too? Cause I've talked to a couple people who have said their cabins, glamping tents, whatever orders are way down over 2020, which is a little bit expected because 2022 was crazy. Yeah. I, I think the main difference that we've seen is that there's a lot of options now in the space, which is great because people now have get to choose from a lot of cool and unique options that are there. Reality is during the pandemic, there were certain manufacturers because things are just flying off the shelf. They really didn't have to do much in regards to customer service or there's just like, Hey, get in the back of the line. I've got, I've got a million people waiting for me. And now they're having to re-up on that. Remember some of their different, maybe they hired the wrong person who can't actually handle some of that customer service that they needed. Or, or even do it for the first time, right? I mean, mm -hmm. maybe they're new, they're too new of a company or they just didn't have to in the last couple of years. Yeah. So I think it's just a sense around and just stay stabilization is what I keep saying, right? Things are just really stabilizing now. It's not negative numbers. People are still had hitting great numbers at the beginning of the season and development is still happening, but interest rates are a little bit higher. So things are a little bit, maybe not as fast as they used to be when people are saying, Hey, we got to get it while we can get it. So run as fast as you can, where we don't care. Just go lightning speed. But I think it's just now that year one of, if there was going to be a era that we can create some kind of code name, like the year of the whatever. And, and I think this will set what the next two to three years 
looks like in, in my mind. And again, been wrong before, I'll be wrong again. But I, that's the sense that I get is that there's going to be, we're going to have to do a quick check in September. And I think we're going to have a lot more information in September where before it just had a completely different vibe. So I don't know what you guys are seeing, but yeah. We're seeing something similar. I, I like the analogy. I feel like the glamping industry is growing up, right? And we had this really exciting breakneck childhood where everything was new and exciting and fun and adventurous. And there's all this energy. And I feel like we're in our awkward teenage years now, like things are starting to mature a little bit, get more stabilized. Some of the vendor pieces that you mentioned, I think vendors that moved quick and made a lot of money during this glory days, heydays. Now they're figuring out this is starting to stabilize a little bit and we do need to innovate. We do need to introduce new things. We need to keep evolving our company because there's just not a hundred orders lined up anymore. The interest rates certainly we're seeing are hurting new projects. I've had feedback that loans to do a new glamping resort have been anywhere as high as eight to 10% in some instances. And especially for small operators, the institutional capital guys that are rolling out 50, 60, 80 units, they don't like a 10% interest rate, but it's not going to stop them from doing a project where we're seeing that pinch is going to be in smaller operators, couples, husband, wife, family, land that they want to do something with. And that's why I think some of these models like what John and Tamika are doing are really interesting as a way to evolve this industry when some of those challenges of traditional development are starting to come up high interest rates are not having access to, to cash or capital to, to launch immediately, not being able to get friends and family, angel investors, everybody's waiting and seeing what's going to happen over the next two years. So I think a lot of people are being a lot more conservative with their investments and their money. So I think I agree with Ruben and what he said that it's not going anywhere, but it's starting to change. Like I said, I think we're starting to grow up and finding our way through our awkward teenage years right now. I, I second or third, the most, one of the <laughs> things that from an operator that I see is that there are, just like you said, there's, and Ruben, you probably know the percentage, but the percentage of those that have multiple sites and then those, the or we would consider national brands. And then the percentage of them that are modern know that they're just one and two owner operated maybe they have one maybe they have two but they're actually operating it some of the challenges and i'll just kind of state for anybody that might be listening or thinking about some of the same things that i think about but we have so when i opened five years ago nothing was near us then we had two national brands one national brand open um uh two owner operated open and then a second national brand looking to open within a 15 mile radius. It is really hard as an owner operator to compete with national brands, right? They just, they can pay for those spots. But in my view, some of the national brands, I feel like have it, have shifted from that term, maybe clampy, and they're a little bit more resorts or hotels that just have accommodations or high price keys. If you're looking at containers or you're looking at airstreams, those, the seasons can go much longer. The barrier to entry is much higher. It makes for those that are owner-operated with not those sort of capital, not the capital to do some of those projects, but it becomes very hard and competitive. So naturally they just get swallowed up 
and well, one of them, I, two of them are already for sale. You know, that that's hard to watch. I, it makes me feel sad a little bit, but I understand that's just how the world works. One of the things that I think about, I sit on the planning commission for the township that I sit in is, all right, what's going to happen with somebody that's developed, put septic and water to 20 different sites, 30 different sites. They've closed or shuttered because a national brand has come in and they're able to pay for all of this. What are they able to do? Can they convert this over to tiny home PUVs? Because you don't want that stuff just sitting empty and you want to be able to find different land uses for some of these people. So one of the things that we're exploring and trying to help explore is, all right, listen, if somebody has 20 sites where electricity and sewer and water have been brought to, can we convert those over to tiny home subdivisions? So it's just so interesting to see this industry move hot and fast and really at the forefront, accommodations are shifting and it's just, it's so much fun to be a part of. So I'm very curious and maybe, and Ruben or anybody can answer this question, but from a perspective of a big group coming in, and obviously we stipulate that they have more capital, but besides the more capital thing and the willingness to deal with higher interest rates, what really is their leg up in today's world when technology and marketing and AI, there's things that really level the playing field in almost every other aspect, isn't there? Yeah, and you guys, I'm sure everybody has a different opinion, but any type of project is just so hard regardless. No operator has ever turned back around and said, wow, that was a lot easier than I thought that would ever be. And so because of that, you look at some of the greenfield projects too, where you have to do the utilities and sewer and septic and just that is then that's it, so much harder as well. So the leg up that they typically have is that they're well capitalized. They bring in the engineers and architects and different staff and different operators, and they've got a team that's been there and maybe not in this exact space, but has been there and done that in development. And they can speak the language when they're talking to towns, they can speak the language when they're talking to contractors and they've got the experience to pull that all together specifically on project management. There's a lot of operators, unfortunately, when they're doing this for the first time, they struggle on that project management side because it's hard, it's really hard. And so you can have all the passion in the world and you can even have some of the funds and do all your research. The rule of development is always, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen and it's going to take longer and it's going to be more expensive. And so these larger groups typically are sophisticated and they've got the capital and they've got the experience to do that. It may not be the perfect brand and it may not be something that stays open five years, but they'll develop, right? And they'll be able to get that up and running sooner. And again, I think it always comes down to these projects are very hard without the right type of capital and capital just goes a long way. It's just like any other type of development. When you can throw some money at something, it's a little bit quicker, but it's that mixture of navigation, experience, capital, and a team. You no, know, it's really hard for one person to do all of it is impossible, depending on the size. Go ahead, Irene. I, was I would also say the other thing, too, that I think big groups have is one of the biggest questions when I sit on calls with people is, how do you create a brand and how do you get your PR? Like, where does your PR come from, Irene? They have social media. They have a whole PR team. They're able to put money towards that. They have people that are doing their SEO. And while it's great that AI is here, you have to have some, some of these operators are busy doing things like sweeping, cleaning tents, sure. scrubbing out hot tubs that we just, so they just don't have the time allotment. And to Ruben's point, I think it's team. I think 
and that team and capital just translate into more hands and the ability to be able to hit all of the multifaceted areas of a business so fast that just automatically puts them in a different position. And I think also cost per keys. You just saw collective retreats go through and update their keys. What did we see? The number was six, $700,000 a key now. That's the cost of a hotel, you know, or you've got getaway with their containers that are with bathrooms. That's probably $50,000 a key. When you're looking at a bell tent with a bathroom in it, you're probably between fifteen dollars and $20,000 a key. So just that order of magnitude is just so much more significant too. There's the, it, That's the part that's fun for me to watch is all of these national brands start to scoop up and expand so quickly. I just was on Collective's page today. I didn't even, I haven't, I hadn't looked in a while. That was one of the first experiences I had with Lamping. And man, they've got 10 sites already on their website with two opening soon. So I'm like, shoot, how did I miss all this? I thought they still just had four. Every time I turn around, more sites are added by the national brands just so much more quickly. But isn't there a, isn't there a place I think, where I, I can expand my team with external people like a marketing agency or an architect or a data consulting company or lean on an association? That, that's what I was going to say. I think that the difference between a mom and pop operator and some of these established brands backed by large institutional capital organizations, it's... I agree with all those things that were said, but I think the thing that's missing is what Brian was getting at, which is yeah. there's there are changes in technology today and there are new things that are out and our world is smaller now than it's ever been. And some of the projects that we've worked on in the last year are, I think probably our smallest one is three domes, three units. I think a lot of times the independent operators are under the impression that, oh, I can't do that. I can't afford that. That's too expensive. I don't have a team. And so they try to do everything themselves. They try to shoulder it all instead of reaching out and working with those professionals that do that. I think I've never had a client that we worked with come back at the end and go, "I, I think I paid my architect too much money. One of our projects this week or just this last week, we had a question that came up, a potential change order during construction that was a $16,000 change order. And we were able to look at it and within 24 hours, figure out a solution that we got back to the contractor and it ended up being a $6,000 change order. So we saved our client 10 grand in 24 hours just by addressing one issue that came up during construction. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that you're going to need an architect. You're going to need a marketing branding agency consultant. If you're financing the project, you have to have a market analysis and a feasibility study. And there's people that are out there there that this is what we do and we're willing to help you. And I think most people, the the people that are not taking advantage of it, I feel like are self-defeating that they're the ones saying, oh, I can't afford it. I, I don't have the money for that. Not realizing that to do all that and hire professionals that can help you get across that finish line, it's going to cost less than you're going to spend to build even one glamping unit. And well, and so I think you're hitting the nail on the head, right? Is that we're willing to help you. And that doesn't always mean only if you pay us. No, Ruben will help you. Like I'll sit on the phone and talk to people. Yeah. I'm sure Cotter will give some, maybe you hire us, maybe you don't, but we're going to talk to you. You're going to come away with something that will make your life easier. Three to four times a week, I spend an hour on the phone with somebody that 
that maybe needs me, maybe doesn't need me, but I can be there to answer questions. And sometimes I get a call six months later that says, Hey, we talked a while back We're, we finally got land. We're finally ready to move forward. Sometimes I never hear from them again, but I, I chalk it up and say, it's my investment in the industry that we're involved in. Yep. It, if I'm able to help that person, it's helping the industry as a whole. So even if I don't immediately get a job or work out of it, it's still something good that I can do. And I think in general, this industry in particular is especially good about trying to help people get started and get into it. So I think that's the difference between independent operators and the institutional capital. I think it's more of a mindset. Those folks have done it enough times. They know what it takes to scale the 10 locations in three years. They know they can't do it all themselves. They're not going to try to do it all themselves. And they're used to that model where I think a lot of people that are looking at a startup or looking to do something on their own, when they hear a, a number like $30,000 or $50,000 to hire professionals and consultants to help you get your project approved and help it get designed and help it get financed, that seems overwhelming, right? And we've had a lot of success in this industry, but I'm not at a wealth point where $50,000 wouldn't put a big dent in my budget, but that is a lot of money. But putting that in context, of just as we mentioned earlier, some of these units costing 60, 80, $100,000, how important is it to hire the right folks and work with the right folks and to spend less than you're going to spend on even one unit? And to that, just, and I've said this a few times before, but I think it's a nice, as we're getting to the top of the hours here, but as we ask the question around and just picking back up what everybody's saying here, what we're seeing now in the space for the first time, literally two years ago, we weren't seeing this as much, but now there is that recognition. Again, as people are getting outside help, buying better products and getting the right materials and doing things above grade, doing what they really need to be doing at the right time. So not just doing it for the sake of doing it or hiring for the sake of hiring somebody or spending money for the sake of spending money. It, there's definitely this vibe, and I've said it before here, is that we collectively as an industry, we're still too poor to do things cheaply, right? We're still too poor to buy cheap, right? Because eventually we're going to pay for it. And now because of those cycles, people are now understanding, okay, I went quick and dirty and cheap, and now I'm paying for it now. Now I've got to go back and I've learned my lessons and now that's bleeding into how other are purchasing. So that would definitely be another thing that... I'm seeing more and more of is a willingness of people to say, how do I do it the right way? So that I don't pay for it down the road where earlier people think you have two craps. They'd just be like, I'm gonna throw it up, see what happens. And I don't really care. And uh, just that phrase of us being too poor to buy cheap is whether you have the cash or not, it's still just industry mindset, right? We're still, we're not hotels. We're not other types of hospitality. So we've got to do it the right way. All right. Well, yeah, I think, go ahead, please. Sorry. I, was just I, a few minutes. I think Irene hit on something really powerful earlier and, and Ruben just reiterated that too. Successful glamping resorts are not about accommodations. It's not about a place to stay. If that's all it is, then yes, these institutional groups are always going to be able to offer more at a lower price point. The way that you set yourself apart, the way that you differentiate is that you're offering an experience a hosted guest experience. So all these other things that we talked about, whether it's hot tubs or partnerships with other groups or venues around 
whether it's offering something that's part of a bigger experience, like a wedding. I think that's still going to be the differentiator in the industry. For me, that's the one thing that does set apart a, a owner operator that is managing and running their own resort, hosting their own guests, they themselves personally, versus some of these institutional groups that you book online, you get a text message with your door code and you never interface with anybody the entire time you're there. All right. Any final thoughts here we've got in the last minute from anybody who wants to wrap up? John and Tamika, anything? Parting words? Yeah, you guys talked about not being able to tap into the the capital and all that, but the real thing that's really helped us was we're part of a network of other mobile and pop-up companies smaller throughout the entire country. We have forums and we have calls about once every other month, and that has really been able to answer a lot of the questions that we would have no idea how to, and it's 100% about being able to help the people that they're not, they're not even part of our competition. They're way on the other side of the world. Seattle is the other side of the world to us. So it doesn't matter. And we're happy to help and answer questions and all that. Yep, for sure. I, and I think that's a kind of a built-in part of our industry here. I think it makes us special. And Ruben has his calls weekly. Well, it was canceled today, right, Ruben? We've got to have it again. I'm missing it. Next week, my weekly fix. All right. Uh, thank you guys. I appreciate you joining us. Another episode of MC Fireside Chats. And we'll let everybody go. We want to thank our sponsor one more time, Verizon Outdoor Hospitality. If you're looking for RV park campground management, they're one of the best companies in the field. So get a hold of them. Maybe they can help you with your needs. Other than that, thank you, John and Tamika. Appreciate you joining us, sharing a little bit about evolution glamping. As always, to our recurring guests, Zach, Irene, Connor, Ruben, Kara. So proud of you, Kara. We'll see you next week for another episode of MC Fireside Chats. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye, guys. Thanks for watching this episode of MC Fireside Chats, hosted by Brian Searle and Kara Sismadia. Have a suggestion for a future show or want to see your campground or company as part of an episode? Email us at hello at moderncampground.com. Join us next week for another episode. And don't miss the latest outdoor hospitality news and commentary from around the world at moderncampground.com. 